Welcome to the Anglers Channel Insider Podcast, presented by Sportsman's Warehouse, your fishing and outdoor store. And here are your hosts, AC Insiders, Danny Blanford and Vance McCullough. All right, everybody. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to the AC Insider Podcast, brought to you by Ranger Boats, powered by Mercury Marine, with our friends at Rely On Lithium Batteries, providing the juice. Uh, Vance and I are on episode number two for us. Appreciate everybody tuning in. We ran a little long on the last one because we love to talk fishing. And we've got another guest with us today that warned us in advance that he too loves to talk fishing and is known to go a little long. So without any further ado, we want to welcome Matt Becker to the show. If you guys have been in a hole, Matt is coming off of his Bass Pro Tour victory and Angler of the Year. So uh, one big tournament capping off one great season and Matt's going to spill the beans. Tell us a little bit about how it all went down. So Matt, welcome to the Angler's Channel and AC Insider Podcast. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me. You know, I'm always game to, to talk some fishing and uh, definitely it's, it's been a wild couple of weeks since Saginaw Bay, since we laid the la weighed the last fish, but uh, yeah, I'm always excited to, to talk fishing and appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. You know, we're excited to have you. Uh, I had to do a little bit of checking and it looks like you get involved in a circuit and you rise right to the top. So congratulations on that. And, you know, I think that's a, uh, it's amazing really. And I know when you and I spoke on the phone, just briefly setting this up, you talked about, you know, kind of starting at the bottom and working your way up. So for those that don't know, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey into professional fishing? How'd you end up here? Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of how I've approached it. You know, I never wanted to be one to uh, to jump ahead of where I should be. You know, I wanted to to climb the ladder exactly how you're supposed to do it and, and kind of take each step for what it is and, and kind of grow as you take each step. So really, my path to professional fishing, you know, probably starts in uh, about 2016, 2015, 2016 range when, when I decided to uh, start fishing the BFLs. You know, I'd always fished like local tournaments. So I grew up around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and always fished like the Pennsylvania Bass Nation and local club tournaments and stuff like that. And my, I always loved tournament fishing and I knew it was something that I wanted to do, but I didn't really know what kind of path to take to get from, from there to the top level. So I, I did some research and, and kind of set almost like a five-year plan and a 10-year plan for what I wanted to do. And that was jump into the BFLs, fish them for a couple years and, and just see how I, I compete against these guys. You know, I wanted to fish a couple, couple seasons and make sure I was making the championship, you know, finishing high in the standings. You know, I, I wasn't really sure what to expect in those. So I, I fished those for for two seasons and, and did well, you know, I, I finished high enough to make the regional each year and uh, had some good finishes in there. So from there, it, it gave me a priority entry into the, at the time it was the Costa series, but now it's called the Toyota series, which is kind of that triple A level in between the BFLs and the FLW tour at the time. So I jump into the, uh, the Toyota series level and uh well let me backtrack and, and say that i i didn't come from much money so i was i was saving every penny that i could scratching every dollar you know sleeping in my truck 
driving to the boat ramp, sleeping in the boat ramps, not even getting a hotel room or renting a house or anything. So I was literally, you know, living on a tight budget just to be able to afford the entry fees into these tournaments. So sign up for my first year of the Toyotas and I'll never forget, you know, I, I took literally the last dollars in my bank account to, to pay the balance for the tournament. And uh, I, I show up to the first tournament and I end up cashing a check. That was the first event at uh, Lake Champlain. And, and really just that $2,000 check, like saved my career looking back. Cause if I didn't cash that check, I probably wouldn't have come up with the, the next, I think it was $1,200 that I owed for the next tournament balance. In order to you were on the pay as you go plan. Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was stretched extremely thin, you know, I, I was doing everything I could to make it happen, but it, but it was stretched extremely thin and, and, you know, just saving every dollar I could here and there. But anyway, cashing that check at Champlain gave me enough to pay the balance for the next tournament in on the thousand islands. So I, I'm able to get there and do that. And I end up winning that tournament the second Toyota series or Costa series at the time event I ever fished. And uh, one that gave me, you know, a financial boost that I needed to uh, be able to continue pursuing this and get out of a little bit of debt and, you know, just get things set financially to be able to continue to fish for a living. And then two gave me the confidence that I can compete and beat any of these guys that are in the field. Cause in that tournament, there were some really good anglers that fished professionally, fished the FLW Tour, and I was able to come out on top of them. So that was a huge confidence boost for me. So we finish out the season, and I qualified for the FLW Tour in 2018. So 2018, I basically took all the money that I had won in that, that win and paid my entry fees to the FLW Tour. And uh, from there, it's just kind of snowballed each year. You know, my first year on the FLW tour, I didn't have a dollar of sponsor money. You know, I had a little bit of help from some friends and family that threw in a couple hundred dollars here and there. But really, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't a whole lot of sponsor help. So I pretty much did it all on my own dime the, the first year. And then, you know, sponsors started to take notice when I won Rookie of the Year my first season. And then from there, it's just kind of snowballed. And, and here we are six years later, the Bass Pro Tour Angler of the Year. I mean, it's pretty crazy to think about. Now, you guys didn't have a Rookie of the Year award there, but this was your first season over there as well, right? So you qualified last year, came over there, and technically you're the Rookie of the Year and the Angler of the Year Correct. if there were two classifications. Correct. They don't really recognize that just only because there's, you know, maximum of eight new guys coming to the Bass Pro Tour. But really, they're they're not really rookies. You know, they fist professionally right. on the pro circuit or the invitationals now. So they're pretty well established anglers. So they don't really like to classify anyone in the Bass Pro Tour as a rookie. But yes, it was my first year on the Bass Pro Tour. <laughs> So you got a thing with the first year, and I know Vance, you kind of did some analysis on some of the points and stuff, and you had some questions about that AOY. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I'll toss it over to Vance, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Yeah, Matt. Obviously, we're talking to you now after you've you know closed out the Angler of the Year title. Um, this being your first year on the BPT, did you dare to dream that big going into the season and identify AOY as a legitimate goal? Or did you kind of wake up one morning down the backstretch here and go, wait a minute, this is real. I have a shot at winning this. Did it kind of sneak up on you or was it the plan all along? 
Well, it's kind of a little bit of both of those, you know, obviously every year that when you start the year, at least for me, I always have angler of the year on my mind. That's the ultimate goal. You know, that's, you're the best angler throughout the entire season from seven different tournaments all over the country. So I really strive to be consistent. So angler of the year is always on my mind, but to be honest, after the first tournament of the year, I had a mediocre finish. I finished like 47th, like, I kind of put it to the back of my mind. It was like, you know, angler of the year is probably out of the question. I'm more so just going to focus on being consistent, cashing some checks and uh, accomplishing my goals that I set for myself this year, which one of my goals was to finish in the top 10 in the points. So that was the goal. The mindset, you know, starting the year is like, I want to make sure I finish inside the top 10 of the points, qualify for red crest and, uh, weigh five fish every day so those were my main goals that i set for myself and win a tournament so i set those main goals for this season and uh really it wasn't until after the cayuga tournament where i i jumped up to about third place in the points and and i started looking at the numbers and doing the math and i realized like hey like i actually have a legitimate shot at winning angler of the year you know, some things are going to have to happen and I'm going to have to really catch them in these last two tournaments, but there's two tournaments left and they're both smallmouth events. So I felt really good about heading into those. And I was like, man, if things work out and I, I do what I'm supposed to do, like it, it's a shot, like it's a legitimate shot. So I would say, yeah, after that, that fifth tournament is when I, it really hit me. Like I'm still alive in this and, and I can make it happen if, if I do my job. So talk to me about the north. final day of the season, though. You're going to that final round, and it's more than just a possibility that you could win Angler of the Year. Did that affect your decision-making on the water in that final day of the season? Yeah, it's pretty crazy look, looking at it. You know, I, I almost wish I was a fan in, in this year's watching watching the race because it was incredible, you know, like – it came down to the last day of the season, really the last period of the season for to determine angler of the year. And, and that's never the case. Typically, it's pretty well decided by the last event, let alone the, the last day or the last hour of, of the last day of the season. So, you know, there was four guys with a legitimate shot to win angler of the year heading into the last tournament. So we were all within 10 points of the lead. I was actually the furthest one back. So I was the the one that was 10 points away from the lead. I was in fourth place heading into the last tournament. And uh, yet Alton Jones Jr. leading and Jacob Wheeler in second and Ott Defoe ahead of me. So, you know, you got three of the biggest names in the sport ahead of me. So, you know, I knew it was a possibility, but heading into the final day, you know, three out of the four make the top 10. All four of us were still mathematically possible to win angler of the year in the final day of the season which is absolutely insane to just think about that you know seven tournaments all across the country and it comes down to to the final day of the season but as far as changing my my game plan no I mean I knew that I just had to put myself in a position and catch the most weight possible finish as high as the standings as I can and kind of see where it lays just because I was kind of doing the chase and I wasn't the one being chased. So I was, you know, behind in the points. So those guys ahead of me had to stumble a little bit in order for me to pass them. So I just, you know, went into it, just fishing the best I could, just hoping to, uh, you know, catch a, 
the, the most weight possible, finish high in the, the standings. You know, honestly, winning the tournament didn't even cross my mind till I, I got the lead in the second period. And that's when it, it you know, kind of dawned on me, like, I could actually win this tournament and kind of forgot about angler of the year for a minute and just kind of let things play out. But man, they were, it was all on my mind there that, that third period for sure. And, you know, constantly running the numbers, seeing where Jacob was and seeing where Ott was. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty crazy day for sure. Yeah. I guess, you know, to your point, a whole season coming down to the final way in and you were aware of what your competitors had at the time too. Right. So it was, yeah. Real time for everybody as it's happening. So you're you're watching, making sure another one doesn't come across and they know how bad they need one. So that had to be just for everybody in the top five. That had to be kind of bonkers out there. A whole new level of stress, I would think. So that's cool. Uh, you know, the spot. I mean, it's like the final day. You just went somewhere else. Right. I mean, everybody, it seemed like, it. you know, if you look through the standings, everybody, three pounders are what you need. And then you have this day where, you know, it's like you found a smallmouth Disneyland, as we've heard in some of the other events. Talk to us a little bit about that spot. I mean, it's not like you were leaning on it for four days, right? Was it something you saved for a final day thing, or did you literally just run onto them? Yeah, it was definitely nothing that I saved or anything. So so to kind of set the whole picture, you know, Saginaw Bay was, the smallmouth fishing in Saginaw Bay was really tough. So in practice, I think I caught five smallmouth in two days of practice. So it wasn't really good at all. But but the area that I ended up winning the tournament on, I got one bite in practice. I caught about a four pounder there in practice. And that was on Sunday. So we're talking a week later, I'm fishing the final day and I'm back on that spot where I had one bite in practice and, and there's a lot more fish there. But, you know, to, to kind of play through the whole tournament, the weather played a huge factor in where you could fish, how you efficiently you could fish and, and all sorts of different variables with the entire playing field. So the first day of my competition, I decided to stay closer to shore, still smallmouth fish out by our boundary, but it was closer to the bank. It was a little more protected. And I thought there was a decent population of smallmouth there. And, and there was a, a good population there, but they were a little bit smaller than I had thought. And, you know, I only caught, I think, 12 or 13 pounds of, of fish and uh, wasn't doing well in the standing. So actually my second day of competition, I totally scrapped that area and actually went largemouth fishing. I had found, I fit, I'd practiced for two hours for largemouth and uh, found one little area where I got a couple bites. So I decided that I was going to go there. And the plan was to just catch enough weight to slide into the top 20 to make the knockout round and then the weight zero. And then I can go back and fish for smallmouth and hopefully figure something out. And looking back, that was exactly what happened. It was the perfect plan. So I fished for largemouth the second day, caught just enough. I think I caught 15 pounds something and I, I slid into the knockout round in 19th place just barely made it by a couple ounces. And, and then we head out into the knockout round and, and I'm totally different area. I think I'm 30 miles from where I was the day before, you know, out fishing for those smallmouth again. And I started in the same area I did from day one. I caught a couple fish early, but it wasn't really happening like I want, I wanted. So I decided to basically just keep practicing. You know, I started looking at some deeper areas and ventured my way out to the the charity islands area and hit a few different spots out there and 
then I kind of remembered about the, the area where I had that one bite in practice. Now this was at this point, this is Saturday. So this is six days after practice. So I'm like, you know, what are the chances gotcha. that there's, there's still some fish there? So let, let's kind of go over there and, and just kind of practice around and check it out. And, you know, I pull in there on the knockout round and, and I get a couple bites pretty quick. So catch a couple fish and then I kind of mill around there for the rest of the day and, and caught a decent bag. You know, I think I caught almost 18 pounds that day, but I never really saw the potential that I found on the championship day. You know, I, I had one big fish there in the knockout round, and that kind of showed me that there was big fish in the area, but I didn't really see the numbers that showed up on the championship round. So fast forward to the championship round, we head out there. Again, we're faced with totally different weather conditions. The weather was the big wild card because it played a huge factor in everyone else's fishing and just how the fish were setting up on the cover. So we head out there championship day. We got totally different weather. We got a real strong east wind, which is kind of rare for this time of year. And uh, it, it, it was actually a perfect wind for where I was fishing because I was kind of protected by one of these little islands out there. And uh, we'll get out to my area and and uh, I, I start scanning around and, and I find a, a group of them pretty quick. And and uh, they started biting pretty quick there in the second period. And, and, and we got to work in a hurry. And the next thing I know, I've got 20 plus pounds of smallmouth on the score tracker. Am I right? Was that the only 20 pound bag of smallmouth weighed in? No. So, so uh, Greg Vinson had one the, the first day. And uh, okay. Kevin Van Dam had one the in the knockout round, actually. So there, there was okay. two big bags of smallmouth like that. and uh, But the final day ended up being the biggest bag of the tournament so as far as out there by the islands was it bottom composition was it a current thing was it something i mean what was different out there and kind of as a follow-up to that i read somewhere you know you use all all three brands of electronics and so if, if electronics were a big part of it talk to us a little bit about that setup yeah so i mean uh, electronics definitely played a role into it so it, there really wasn't a whole lot there on on the bottom as far as where the fish were. You know, I, I really think it was a current thing, the way the wind was kind of coming around this island. And I think it was just pushing some water around and it kind of had the fish grouped up in this one little area. But, you know, back to practice, I, I never would have even checked this area if it wasn't for Lake Master mapping. So I run all three brands, as you mentioned. You know, I, I really like my Lowrance units for navigation for waypoint management i really like their side imaging and down imaging at the console but i also run a hummingbird back there just for lake master mapping and and this area showed up way better on lake master mapping than it did say navionics or cmap so the having the hummingbird mapping back there definitely you know kind of clued me and, and pulled me to go that direction so i, I you know I, I checked that area in practice and then as far as the front of the boat actually fishing, you know, I I, uh, I have another Lowrance as well for, for the waypoint management and and uh, running the, the mapping up there as well. And, and then I really like Garmin for the forward-facing sonar. So I have a couple units up there set up for that with the LiveScope Plus that that's really what I do my fishing with. You know, I'm staring down at that screen, looking at the LiveScope, looking for fish and just gives you a, a real live live time view of what's going on down there so you're able to to see the fish and see where you need to cast has that changed your fishing i mean are, are, have you moved to a point where that's if you don't see them you're not casting absolutely 
<laughs> Absolutely. Live scope has, has ruined me, but I say that I say that it's ruined me, but I'm, you know, doing a lot better on the water. I just want angler of the year. So I can't say it ruined me too much. I mean, it just made me a better angler and I really rely on it heavily. That that's kind of what I mean by ruin me is, is mm -hmm. it's hard for me to go fishing without it now. You know, I, I rely on it so heavily that if for some reason, um, you know, I didn't have it for a day, I would, I would kind of feel like I was at a disadvantage and that kind of goes back to my setup. Why I have two of them in the front, just in case anything would happen to one of them. I kind of have a backup that could get me through the day. If, if I was really relying on it. A security blanket, so to speak. So yeah, exactly. you're definitely, you're ingrained in it at this point. You know, I bring it up because I was listening to some guys talking about it the other day and, and they said the same thing you did that, they think it made them better because now they know when they're casting at something and they're not catching them, they, they feel like they know they're doing something wrong. And likewise, if, if there's nothing there, they can, it, it's, it's making their day more productive, I guess I should say, because you're, yeah. you're making more high percentage casts on good stuff and good fish. So that's that was exactly interesting to get right. your thoughts on. Yeah, that's exactly right. It makes you so much more efficient. So, you know, so just say fishing a brush pile, for example, Previously, before LiveScope, you would pull up and, you know, line up with your waypoint or your, your landmark or whatever, and it might take you five or 10 casts before you actually hit the brush pile or hit exactly where the fish are in the brush. But now you just pull up and scan over there with LiveScope and you know you're, the first cast you make is going to fall right into the best spot of that brush pile. So you're saving yourself five or 10 casts and you can fish so much more water and be so much more productive. So that's just one of the many things that it's made me better at is just be, being so much more efficient and managing my time better. When you talk about the Lake Master aspect of it, I know when you get up on the Great Lakes, contour changes aren't like what you see on a Tennessee River in terms of a drop or something. What right. kind of what kind of contours were you saying? I mean, we talking a, a one foot contour interval or something pointed out that there was something a little different going on there or, or what kind of feature was it? Well, basically I was fishing a, a long extended point that came off of that island. And so the Lake Master just kind of drew out the point a little bit better than the Navionics. The Navionics map didn't really show it very well. So kind of just seeing the way that point laid out on the, the Lake Master kind of drew me to that area and knew I wanted to check it out and kind of get on top of that point and, and roam around, you know. The fish themselves weren't really set up on any type of structure as far as a drop off or rock or anything. It was just kind of a, a sandy point, a couple rock piles here and there, but the fish weren't really set up on them. So it was basically just a slow tapering point. You know, I'd say where I was starting would be about 15 feet and I would kind of drift out with the wind to about 20 feet and that'd probably be over a half a mile, three quarters of a mile. So it was a very slow tapering point and uh, just kind of almost like a, a big flat. Well, well, Vance, I know you had something that you brought up when you and I were talking. Why don't you, uh, why don't you hit Matt with this one? I think this is funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen the picture going around the social media of, I believe a 13 year old Matt Becker at the uh, Pittsburgh classic with Kevin Van Dam 2006, I believe Kevin won that tournament. So, I mean, being a lifelong fan of the sport, Matt, going into the final day, you know, they say to be the man, you got to beat the man, right? What was it like that that's the man you got to beat? That's the one leading the whole parade, everybody chasing the all-time leading money winner in our sport in his, you know, last day on, uh, you know, regular season day on the water. 
what was that like? That was pretty crazy to think about, you know, especially looking back the way it all went down, you know, it's his last tournament. He announced his retirement this year. So it's like, man, heading out with, with him leading the pack on the final day and, and then chasing Jacob Wheeler as well for angler of the year. It's like, you got the two of the biggest names to ever bass fish to ever launch their boat. And I'm, you know, going out launching the same day with them, chasing them down to win both the titles. And it's pretty crazy for sure. You know, it was about halfway through the final day when, when I took the lead from him and, and I started thinking about actually winning the tournament and, you know, beating Kevin on his final day and spoiling the retirement party and all those things, all those thoughts start running through my head. And it's like, man, that, that is something special. That's something that I will hold on to for the rest of my life. And uh, if it holds up, you know, and, and then I start thinking, here we go. This is Kevin Van Dam. Like, do you know how many people that he's Van Dammed over the years and, and snatched their first win out from <laughs> under him? So those thoughts start running through my head and I'm like, okay, we, we got to just keep the hammer down. We can't let up at all because you know, he's coming for you. He's trying everything he can. That, that, that dude's just incredible. He, he's the the greatest bass fisherman of all time. Greatest tournament bass fisherman of all time. And, uh, Taking you didn't that feel a little bit guilty away. about crashing the party? No, no bad feelings there? Yeah, like the smallest amount possible. Just a little <laughs> tiny bit. I felt I felt bad about spoiling the retirement party. You know, he had his whole family <laughs> and everyone there. And, uh, I mean, uh, it would have been a storybook ending for sure to, to uh, go out on top there at Saginaw Bay. But to be honest, you know, I guess the big – big man upstairs had different plans for us because because there was nothing I could do wrong and it just worked out perfect yeah you hear that a lot man when it's your time it is your time huh one of those deals yep no doubt there I couldn't do anything wrong you know it, it just everything worked out and every fish I hooked was a big one and and then even on the angler of the year side you know everything just that needed to happen happened that week and yeah it was just a meant to be kind of week for sure you know i've done a handful of these and we always try to talk with winners and it's funny that almost everybody that we ever talk with has similar similar stories about their victory about you know things can't go wrong and the and the little idiosyncrasies that happen along the way that tune them in and and, you know, there definitely seems to be some divine intervention on a big day like that. So that's awesome to recognize your faith and give credit for that. I think that's awesome. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, Matt, tell us a little bit about your your setup and the bait. Was it one bait for you? I mean, obviously going largemouth, smallmouth, you were doing different things. But what, yeah. what was the final day? Let us taste that final day bait. Yeah, so all of the three days that I smallmouth fish, you know, the first qualifying day, then the knockout round and the uh, championship round, every smallmouth that I caught was on a drop shot with a shad shaped worm. So I love the Yamamoto shad shaped worm. And, and really it's pretty special because you, you rewind back to that Toyota series win that jump started my career. It was on the Yamamoto shad shaped worm. So it's been a player in my career from day one. It, it has been the most influential bait in my, my life to be quite honest. So it's super cool to do that. And it was even cooler that at Saginaw Bay, I got to use a color that I designed with Fish USA. So it's a Fish USA exclusive color in the shad shaped worm. It's called Becker's Magic Juice. It's a, it's like a dark green pumpkin back with a natural shad laminate for the belly. Just a super natural looking color. It, it's kind of a darker color, shows up well 
and a little bit dirtier water and uh, cloudy days. And that's exactly what we were faced with there on championship day at Saginaw. So I it, exclusively threw the, the Becker's Magic Juice Keller on the final day at, at Saginaw Bay, caught every bass on it and won the tournament, won Angler of the Year, all that on the bait that I designed or a keller that I designed in such a special bait to me. I mean, it was a dream scenario in, in that side of things. So my drop shot. Dude, you, gave, you, <laughs> you gave me goosebumps and I, you know, and I don't have anything to do with the shad shape worm, but to think about all that unfolding and what that would feel like for, from a guy that comes from humble beginnings to uh, be standing on the bow, taking out King Kong on a bait that's got your name on it, man. That that's, uh, that's pretty special. I think, I think that's, that's the story. And I, and I think that that's probably what resonates with our audience, right? We've got a big audience of guys that, or like the young Mac, Matt Becker and maybe not necessarily young in age, but young in experience on the tournaments. Right. And thinking about BFLs and weeknighters and, and wanting to be on that, the bow of that boat, taking out King Kong and having a bait named after him. So congratulations on that. Vance, I know you talked a little bit about the strategy stuff and the, and the mindset you're, you're more into uh, what's going on in the head. You want to throw something out there before we wrap up this one with Matt? Yeah. Yeah, you know, one thing that really strikes me, Matt, is you talk about, um, you know, having a lackluster practice. We hear that so often. You know, the guy that'll do well at a tournament, well, practice didn't go well. You got like a clue, you know, you just got a little clue here and there to clue you in. Talk a little bit about how important it is, especially at this level and multi-day tournaments, to approach each day with an open mind and be open to what opportunities present themselves as you move through the competition rounds. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things to, to, I would say, learn or become confident in is just totally scrapping your practice or continuing to look during tournament hours just because, you know, typically you want to find some fish in practice and go right to them, just fish those areas all day and, uh, you know, catch some fish and have a good tournament. You know, that's the dream scenario, but rarely does it ever work that way. You know, usually we're faced with, different weather conditions, you know, boat traffic, all different sorts of scenarios happen from practice to the tournament. So, you know, you kind of got to adjust based on all those different variables. And for me, I always like to try and keep an open mind. You know, I really like to use my, my two days of practice to uh, explore the lake, kind of, you know, look for productive areas that may be productive later in the week, productive areas at the time, and kind of try and follow the fish throughout the tournament. But at the end of the day, you know, it's all about locating where those fish are, where they're going to be, and, and trying to predict where they're going to be. So, you know, it's it, like I mentioned, it's really, it's a really hard thing to uh, totally scrap your practice. And, and it kind of comes with experience. You know, the more you do it, the more confident you become in yourself and uh, making those decisions and just being able to say, well, practice was three days ago. They're not doing that. Let's go look for what they're doing right now. And and when you do that and you get on those fresh patterns, it usually turns into a really good tournament because nobody else has figured those out because it's something that just started happening the day of the tournament or the day before. And, you know, not as many people figure that out. So that's kind of why I always try and, you know, keep trying new things, keep practicing to try and stay on top of those fish and, and stay in front of them almost just because when you do luck into that and find that, you know, it it's going to be a, a good time and, and you're going to have a good event. 
That's a great point. Well, I think yeah. that's the thing that I think that's the thing that the recreational angler struggles with so much. I mean, we've, we're all guilty of it. You catch them somewhere on Thursday, you show up on Saturday and everything's different, but you don't really have a, another plan. And you just keep thinking, well, I know they were here. And I think that's the difference. A guy like Matt can pull the trolling motor and go find fresh ones. And the rest of us spend eight hours doing it wrong. So, yeah, that's what you know, I mean. Matt, I it, it's it's so hard, so hard to do it, and you know, you get set in your mind that there's there's fish only on these this set of laydowns or you know this area of the lake. But you know, you just got to keep an open mind and and just keep keep doing it, and and you'll become more confident in it as you do it. Matt, I appreciate you sharing some of that with us and kind of letting us in your head on the event. Uh, I'd like to ask you to stick around, Vance and I, as part of the revised podcast we, we're starting to do something called a deep dive and we like to pick baits or techniques uh with some of our guests you know and obviously coming off angler of the year if you had to put your hand on or finger on you know one particular bait or technique what what would that be is it the worm or is it the drop shot or the combination of the two or none of the above i would have to say the drop shot you know just looking back at the schedule um you know i would say i weighed in bass on at least four of the seven, if not five of the seven tournaments on a drop shot. So I feel like it played a big role in, in you know, the success this year. So let's dive into the drop shot. Sounds good, folks. You hear that? We're going to talk with Matt Becker about the drop shot that got him the Bass Pro Tour Angler of the Year. Stick with us. We're going to take a quick break. Here's some words from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll get into the nitty gritty of drop shotting with Matt Becker. Stay tuned. Since 1968, One Boat Company has stood as the gold standard for quality, performance, innovation, safety, and resale value. Ranger Boats. Ranger's passion for perfection is evident in every boat that leaves our facilities, whether it's bound for lakes and rivers for fishing and fun or targeting trophy tuna and blue water. Ceaseless innovation results in top-tier boats that have made Ranger the go-to for tournament anglers and weekenders alike. And the new Z521R and Z520R redefine what a premium bass boat can be. Ranger, still building legends, one at a time. Sportsman's Warehouse is your one-stop convenient place to shop. Whether you're into camping, hunting, or fishing, our expert associates can help you find the gear you need. We carry a huge assortment of quality equipment from the best manufacturers in the country and around the world. We have guns, ammo, rods, lures, not to mention every kind of outdoor clothing for the whole family. You can shop in one of our fully stocked stores or visit us online at sportsmans.com. Visit Sportsman's Warehouse, shop one of over 130 locations nationwide and growing. This segment is brought to you by Humminbird, Minn Kota, and their One Boat Network. All right, gang, welcome back. We, uh, we're getting into our first deep dive of Vance and I's podcast career. And who better to take a deep dive into a tactic than with Bass Pro Tour Angler of the Year, Matt Becker. Matt's coming off of an awesome season and in a previous interview, we asked him about what was his strong suit, you know, what, what does he credit it? And the answer was a drop shot. So today we're going to talk with Matt and we are going to pick his brain on drop shotting. Matt, uh, prior to coming on, I told you that uh, I'm in the, the Ohio river Valley, not, you know, the same terrible river, you know, up around Pittsburgh. So a drop shot doesn't play much here. And uh, Vance is down in Florida and uh, he does a lot of stick worms, but usually uh, weightless. So we're excited. Tell us about the drop shot and uh, what your setup look like. Yeah, you know, the, the drop shot is such a versatile technique or rig or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it, it is 
put so many fish in the boat for so many anglers over the last probably 15, 20 years since it's really come on to the scene. And it, it's just a, a technique that the fish never get tired of seeing. You know, it, it's a, such a unique action and and it's a different action every single time that the fish just can't resist. So let's start extremely basic. You know, basically a drop shot is a hook tied onto the line that is above your weight. So, so you'll have coming down from your rod, you'll have your hook first and then the weight below it. So there will be a 12 to 18 inches of leader above your weight. So your weight falls and hits the bottom and your bait is hovering 12 to 18 inches off of the bottom. So it looks natural keeping your bait up off the bottom. The fish really like to uh, feed upward. So if they're sitting on the bottom and you know, they see a drop shot fall and that bait stops above them, that just kind of triggers them to come up and check it out and uh you know, they're very interested in, in feeding on stuff above them, okay? So second, mm -hmm. it's extremely snag resistant, extremely weedless. You can fish it in weeds. You can fish it in brush and trees. You can fish it in any type of structure, depending on how you're rigging it. So essentially, there's there's two hooks that I use for a drop shot, two ways to rig it. And you, you, that would be like a nose hook style, and that's more of an mm -hmm. exposed hook style. That's for... Uh, Basically, I use that for fishing for smallmouth. So whenever I'm using the, the Yamamoto shad-shaped worm, I like to use a, a Trocar TK150 drop shot hook, either the number two or the number four size. So I like a really small hook on that finesse hook. You know, generally we're using light line on a drop shot. So that hook there is, is for more of your smallmouth baits, nose hooking, you know, little shad-shaped worms or, or shad imitating style baits like that. Even, even your flatworms, things like that. The other hook I like to use is, is the Trocar TK180. So that's more of like your straight shank finesse worm hook. So it's a straight shank drop shot hook. And with that hook, it's got a good keeper on the shank that, that you're basically Texas rigging your worm. So you're Texposing a, a drop shot worm, whether it's a hand poured worm, like a robo worm or, you know, a Yamamoto Pro Cinco. So many different options you can use on a drop shot even up to, to different types of baits. You could use creature baits. You can use anything on a drop shot. There's no limit on what you can use on a drop shot, but probably a worm is the most common. You know, probably a robo worm is the most common that you hear about on a drop shot. And, and that's when I like to use that TK 180 straight shank style drop shot hook. And I generally start with like a two aught size, you know, I'll go up to about a three aught, you know, but generally it, it's somewhere in that, that two aught range is, is what I'm using just because it's a little bit smaller. You don't want a really big hook because that affects the action of, of your worm, but that little bit smaller hook also comes through brush and cover a lot better. So I'm rigging up that hook whenever I'm, you know, more largemouth fishing or spotted bass fishing in brush piles on ledges on the Tennessee river things like that. So those are the hooks. Basically, the, the the whole setup, you know, generally I'm throwing a drop shot on a spinning rod. So it, it's a, generally it's a lighter technique, you know, you're using a little bit lighter weight. So I like to go with a spinning rod with it. So I throw the favorite hex seven foot two medium heavy spinning rod, and then a 15 pound Seaguar Smackdown braid. And I'll tie an FG knot to a uh, anywhere from eight to 12 pound Seaguar Tatsu fluorocarbon leader. So if I'm largemouth fishing with the, the straight shank hook on a, you know, a Tennessee river ledge or brush piles, I'll start with the 12 pound. 
if I'm, you know, smallmouth fishing with the, the TK 150 nose hooking a shad shaped worm, then I'm going to use the eight pound and, and kind of just kind of mix and match and, and play with the line size, you know, on how the fish are biting. If the fish are biting really good, you know, you can, you can even up your line, use a little bit heavier line. So you don't have to worry about breaking them off or anything like that. But generally I'm in between that eight and 12 pound and then uh, down to the weight, you know, I'll use anything from about a three sixteenths to uh, sometimes even even a little bit heavier up to five eighths or three quarter if we're really deep, but that's a really rare situation. So majority of the time, it's probably three sixteenths to, to half ounce and it's an epic tungsten drop shot weight. I really like the teardrop style just because I feel like you can feel the bottom composition a little bit better. It's making more contact than like the pencil style drop shot weight. So I really like the teardrop style doesn't get hung up very much in, in whatever structure you're fishing. So I I go with the, the teardrop tungsten drop shot weight 100% of the time, pretty much three sixteenths to, to half ounce, like we mentioned, just depending on the depth and the cover and everything like that. So that's pretty much all the equipment side of things. Now, you know, there's so many different ways you can fish it and times a year to fish it, but it, it is just such a great technique to to get a bite and put fish in the boat whenever you're struggling triggered a few questions for me number one when you talk about i always associate it with light line and you mentioned fairly light lines there do you think that it's is that a visibility thing because the fish are line shy or is the light line making the worm fall more natural when you let it fall yes or is it it's a little bit of both, you know, obviously if you have super clear water, then, then yes, it could become a visibility thing. And, you know, that's when you want to kind of lean towards the lighter side of the line. But, you know, if you're in your little bit dirtier water, or even on like the Tennessee river, the water is clean, but it's not really clear. Um, I don't think the fish can see the line so much as it definitely affects the action of your bait. So Always the lighter the line, the more action your bait's going to have. That That's just a great roll of thumb, no matter what technique it is. So as far as action-wise, you know, obviously the lighter line you can use, the more action your worm's going to have, the, the less the current is going to have a drag on your line. So that's kind of mm. why I always stay in that 8 to 12-pound range. And also, that's why I choose Seaguar Tatsu because that line is a little bit thinner diameter than than some other competitive competitors line in the same pound test class. So it's all about the diameter of line as far as the action and the current pulling on the line. Mm -hmm. It's all about the diameter of that line. So that's why I choose the Seaguar Tatsu just because it's a little bit thinner diameter than, than other brands. And uh, it allows me to use a heavier pound test with a thinner diameter and, and still get that action that I want. I did not think about current drag, but that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're trying to get a little bait down at depth and you've got a, a wind driven current or a, a river system that I don't know if anglers realize how much the current will move that line and move that bait off target. I think we're seeing it more now. It's one thing I've learned with my forward-facing sonar yeah. is the amount of movement from where I think I'm going and how I'm approaching, you know, a piece of structure to where it's actually at. So, you know, that's where forward-facing sonar has helped me, and that's a great point on that. On that, um, Vance in Florida, are you going to go out with a 10-pound line and a drop shot? Well, my personal best is a seven pounder on three pound line crappie fishing. So I'm I'm pretty uh swanky on the uh, finesse deal there, man. Don't, don't try me. 
Um, <laughs> no, well, I'll say up this. a little bit. I like it. I like it. <laughs> no, I will say this though, Matt. I found that the line size I can use is often dictated by the action of my rod. Um, how much backbone it has, how much give it has. Talk to me a little bit about the action of the rods you're using with eight to twelve pound Tatsu line. You know, what can you get away with? What uh you know, how much heat can you put on a fish? What kind of rods are you using in your setup? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean that it kind of goes it's a whole system from from rod, reel, line, hook, everything works together as one system. And if one of those pieces are off a little bit, it's going to screw up the entire system. So like you mentioned, you know, the rod plays a huge role in it. So I really like the, it's a favorite hex. It's a seven foot two medium heavy. So it's classified as a medium heavy, but it runs a little bit lighter, a little bit softer than other brand medium heavy. So I would say it fishes more like a medium. It's got a okay. I was gonna say a seven two seven two medium. It seems like you could you could pop one off, but it must it must bend a little deeper and have a little more give to it then than what I'm Correct. used to. Correct. It's a little bit softer than than you're thinking as a medium heavy. So it it mm -hmm. it is uh you know it loads up well and uh, it's got a really fast tip. So you can set the hook and then it kind of loads up the rest and you can use that to one, not straighten out your hooks or break your line or things like that. So the rod definitely plays a huge role in, in that side of things as far as straightening out hooks or breaking your line. Um, so you, you can't basically rig up a drop shot on a flipping rod and, and expect to, you know, not have some kind of equipment failure there just because, you mm -hmm. know, the, the little drop shot hooks are, are not meant for heavy line and or heavy powered rods. And it's just going to straighten them out or, or cause some sort of failure there. So it's a whole system and, and you, you really want to use like a, a medium, medium heavy spinning reel, spinning rod that uh, doesn't have a, a whole lot of backbone that loads up well and, and just allows the rod to do a lot of the work that, that you don't have to. Interesting point there, uh, you know, fast tip and talk about how the rod loads. Does it matter where the action of the rod is? Does it need to be? in the tip or can we have a rod that loads more parabolically throughout the, the blank there? Uh, do you find that, that matters? Does it help you when it comes to setting the hook? If it's all that is all on the tip as opposed to all the way down the backbone or how, how does that factor into your rod selection as well? Yeah. I, I like a little bit faster tip on, on the rod just because the, the second that you kind of pull into that fish, that, that tip is going to load up and it's going to hook that fish. Whereas you know, a more moderate rod is what it would uh, take longer for that fish to feel the rod. You know, basically a, a moderate rod um, loads up slower. So so further down the rod before it hits the, the power that you need to set the hook. So the faster I can get that hook into the fish without him feeling it is definitely going to be a good thing, you know, as far as hooking up the fish. Then you want a little bit lighter power so so the rest of the bend in the rod you know you, you can use that to fight the fish but the the fast tip side of things is what gives you that good hook set and you know i've actually had experiences where i was using the wrong rod for the technique and and it was costing me landing fish i was using a more moderate spinning rod setting the hook and it was just taking that extra split second and not really driving the hook home and i was losing fish because of that so I, i've learned 
you know, and messed around with my setup and, and the stuff I'm using right now is is the best in the game for sure. It's the best spinning rod that I've found for all these techniques. And it just sets the hook perfectly. And then the rest of the rod does the work when you're fighting the fish. Great technical tip on that part. When we talk about the technique, like we talked about how important forward facing sonar is for you, you're looking at these fish that you're throwing. I watch a lot of live how much of your how much of your drop shotting are you in contact with the bottom and how much of it's mid-water column if you can't see the fish you know i mean should a guy should a guy be consistently fishing that drop shot on the bottom if you're not looking at him or more up middle of the water kind of more of a shaky retrieve coming back to you no so if you're not looking at individual fish then then you're going to be fishing it on the bottom so so the mm -hmm. drop shot to me is you, you fish it a lot like you would a carolina rig on the ledges or brush piles, stuff like that. You're fishing it very slow, kind of dragging it through the cover or over the ledge. Whereas when you're smallmouth fishing, you're almost looking for a fish or a rock pile or a target to throw it at. And sometimes you, you can stop that drop shot right in front of the fish. But if I'm not looking at an individual fish, I'm letting it fall to the bottom and kind of crawling it along the bottom. Gotcha. What about the bubble shot? Do you ever take it to that extreme and, and fish a drop shot shallow, like with heavier Great equipment? Or, or or is that just not a true drop shot in your opinion? I mean, that's definitely still a drop shot. It's just beefed up and, you know, kind of changed the name on it a little bit. It, it's not really something that I mess with a whole lot. You know, it just something that it doesn't really fit into my fishing style very much you know i've definitely messed with it a few times and, and i've i've done it i've caught some fish on it but it's just not something that i regularly have rigged up and ready to go but Danny, that was that was a good point because i was kind of wondering i mean that's that's taking things to an extreme right that you know notwithstanding what are some tips what are some things i can do matt down here where i live you've fished the st john's river and stuff like this before around lily pads, Kissimmee grass, you know, not super thick hydrilla, right? But cover nonetheless, yeah. uh, you know, what are some, some tweaks you might make that would allow you to fish successfully around that kind of cover uh, with the drop shot? Yeah, so you're definitely going to have to adjust your equipment. You know, you're going to want to start with a, a beefier hook just because you're in that heavier cover. You might have to put a little more power behind the rod and behind the fish to, to get them out of that cover. So Definitely, you know, up upsizing your hook or, you know, maybe going to a heavier gauge, heavier wire hook, um, whether it's, you know, a three-aught trocar, four-aught, or a different brand, almost even a flipping hook. You could even use just like a, a TK-130 flipping hook on a, on a heavier drop shot or almost even the bubba shot, like we just mentioned there, that, uh, you know, it's a lot heavier gauge hook, so you can use heavier line you can use 15 17 20 pound line on it with a, a seven foot six heavy bait casting rod and and not straighten out that hook and have equipment failures there so you can you can adjust all of that based on the cover you're fishing for me i i really like just sticking with the lighter stuff you know i like using the, the 12 pound in, in those situations and, and just wrestling them out with the spinning rod yeah, I guess for those that don't know, when I refer to a bubble shot, that's just uh, it's the same rig that Matt's talking about in terms of uh, the setup, the hook above there and stuff. It's just basically a beefed up version um, done on a flipping stick, but the exact same setup. It's just 
uh, in my neck of the woods where we fish a lot more wood cover and shallow water and that kind of thing, um, I'm more prone to pick up something like that. You know, if you've got fish suspended to Vance's point, uh, seen scenarios where you've got some fish sitting under lily pad edges, things like that. Perhaps if you flip a weight in there and it drops all the way to the bottom, they're not interested. But if you do a bubba or a drop shot, it's getting a more slow natural fall past that edge. And, and it seems like that'll trigger some bites sometimes. So that's kind of the distinction for those that don't know. It's just equipment based, but same technique and uh, same application. I guess you're getting that free fall of that bait between the distance of the, you know, the hook tie and the, the top of the sinker. So there's something about that natural fall, it sounds like. And Matt, when you do it, do you spend a lot of your time in contact with your weight or do you let, do you give that worm some slack to allow it to basically fall natural back towards that weight? Are you always in contact where it's tight line or not? No, I definitely like to to give it some slack and, and allow it to dance in between that, you know, 12 to 18 inches that, that you have there before it hits the bottom. So I think a lot of, a lot of fish like that kind of slow nose, fall to the bottom and and you get a lot of your bites then where you let some slack in your line and you pick up and it's heavy or it's swimming off and and that's because that fish ate it when you let that slack out and your your worm just kind of started slowly gliding down to the bottom and that's when they picked it up when you tie on a hook and a sinker what are you usually what is the thing you start with when you're drop shotting what what particular soft plastic do you start with when you're trying to find a drop shot bite well, if I'm smallmouth fishing, it, it's going to be the Yamamoto shad shaped worm. You know, that, that is mm -hmm. tried and true. It is, it is my favorite bait by far. I've won more money on that bait than anything. So that, that's really honestly the only drop shot bait I'll have in the boat whenever uh, I'm going smallmouth fishing. Um, largemouth or spotted bass fishing, you know, it's probably going to be, a, be a worm like a robo worm or a, a Yamamoto pro Cinco, something that comes to a point at the end that has a lot of action that, that wiggles very well. And, uh, you know, as far as colors, it, it's hard to beat anything morning dawn or green pumpkin. Yeah, I was wondering if that was going to be what you were going to say. Yeah. I mean, anything, anything like that, pink or purple, that, that fish really seem seem to like that. So that, that's probably be my, my go-to. You know, we've had, I've only done a handful of these podcasts, but we've talked about morning dawn on several of them and we're usually talking to winners. So there's something to that goofy pink and purple. There's no doubt about it. I can't figure it out, but, but the bass just eat it. I don't know why. Yeah. You know, that's what everybody says. And, and we try to figure out what they think it is or what they're seeing. And I don't think we'll ever know because we don't see the way they see. Right. But whatever happens underwater with morning dawn, uh, it, it turns on the fish for sure. We, we've talked about it several times. So, well, there, I mean, I think for the most part, Vance, what did we leave out? What do they need to I don't know? know about man. We got pretty in depth on this deep dive. I've, uh, I know I've learned a lot. We've got specific hook recommendations, line recommendations, rod actions, mm -hmm. how to work the bait, how to do I mean, it, how to win this good. Yeah, we and we know now we know how to wiggle our worm, and they say that's real important too, right? So, that's what that's some right. guys say. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it PG, boys. Keep it PG. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And and Matt, I think you did a great job on the deep dive and, and nobody any more qualified than to talk to us about it than somebody with that wall of accolades you got sitting behind you, man. So uh, thank you for that. Thanks for making some time for the winner's circle and, and doing two segments with us, man. We appreciate you joining in at the Anglers Channel. Look forward thanks to watching you again me. next year. Yeah, thanks for having me anytime. You know, hope, hopefully we get on here again soon. That'll mean we did something good again. That's right. Or that, or we might have to come yeah. back and do some more deep diving. Maybe we'll have to do a shad-shaped worm, uh, and you can tell us the 50 ways to fish it or something on, on a future episode. Sounds good. I, uh, 
you know, the, I got to check out the Becker's juice. You know, we fish tubes a lot where I'm at. And one of the most biggest requested colors we get is uh, a green pumpkin with a pearl blue or a pearl purple belly, you know? So it sounds like that's kind of where you're at too on, on the shad shaped worm on nice looking laminate. That makes sense to me. So, Hey, we appreciate you opening up your tackle box and sharing your time, man. We'll, uh, we're going to cut you loose here. Vance and I are going to hit a few more things for our guys, and then we will be out of here and we'll be coming back for, uh, uh, every other Tuesday going forward. So again, Matt, on behalf of Angler's Channel and all the AC Insiders, thank you very much, man. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. See you. Thanks, Matt. At Mercury, there are no limits to the lengths we'll go to make sure you have no limits either. Unlimited adrenaline. Unlimited fun. Unlimited weekend. Except maybe having to go home eventually. Introducing the all-new V8 Mercury Pro XS. Light, quick, efficient. Mercury, go boldly. Whether day or night, I love to tie one on. Every day of the week, I like to tie one on. I don't care who's looking, I always tie one on. Every time I go in the water, I love to tie one on. You may not know this about me, but every once in a while, I've been known to tie one on. Come on, man. Join the Stray King team. All you got to do, tie one on. <laughs> I think I always tie one on. This segment is brought to you by Rely on Lithium Batteries, the power to challenge your limits. All right, fishing fans, welcome back. Coming out of a deep dive with BPT Tour Angler of the Year, Matt Becker. Uh, Vance, I learned a little bit. What about you? Oh, man. Yeah, what an awesome uh, conversation. Awesome guy. Deserves everything good that's happened to him. And uh, just so happy for him and, and happy to have him on the show with us. Yeah, that was a cool story. And, and you know, I, I was a little ignorant. Uh, I was aware of Matt, and I knew that he had accomplished a lot, but I hadn't spent the time, like, looking through – what a what a track record to to show up, cash checks, win an event, rookie of the. I mean, it just consistently. You know, the guy lands on the fish, and in a, in another article I was reading about him, he talked about how important it is to write his goals down. And you know, when you asked your question about what where his goals were, you know, the, think about that for a minute. Coming into something as daunting of a task as the BPT, uh, and saying, "Well, I'm going to win one. I'm going to catch." five fish in every tournament and I'm going to finish in the top 10 dude put some pressure on himself right out of the gate. Right. Like that's not a, yeah. oh, I'm just happy to be here. Let's hope for the bad. You know, it was none of that. It was, these are your expectations and this is what you need to get done. Yeah. Middle side of the game. Just uh, that's, that's a big thing with me. And that guy, he, you know, he's mentally tough. He, you can tell he's a competitor and uh, very resilient. And like I said, he came up the hard way. Nothing was easy for him coming up and, and it shows now in his character and uh you know what I mean kind of a stone cold killer when you get out there the final day you're chasing down Kevin Van Dam for all the marbles come on man <laughs> I know I know and uh, you hit on something there that I think is important you know the people that do it that way they they're definitely a it's a tougher cut of meat for sure right because it's, it's yeah. been beat on and 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 put away and you know it's just a, a tough deal and what a cool story I love it uh, I love it I love it and I love that somebody I love that we're in a sport where I mean, I was at that classic work in it and he was a kid, right? I mean, he was a young man at that point 
And yep. in a short amount of time, he was able to enter our, our sport, our profession, climb the ranks and make it to the top. Like there's not, there's barriers to entry, but we've seen it time and again, that if a person has the passion, they can, they can rise to the top and, and participate in our sport. And that's cool. You know, I could want to be an NBA basketball player uh, with all my might, but I can't get to the rim. Right. So I have limitations in fishing. We don't have those really. And that's, that's one of the cool things about the sport for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and yeah. it was cool. I like him sticking around and doing our deep dive. I think those are going to be good. We look forward to offering those to our listeners going forward um, this week, because it was Matt and his success, we, we lumped them together. But as we get into future shows, we hope to have separate guests and, and get into a lot of different topics. And we're going to see about getting those stripped out and putting those on the web too for People maybe that just wanted to listen to Matt's Winter Circle, they didn't stick around for our deep dive. Uh, our goal is to get that made available online as well, so you can hear from the man himself about, uh, you know, his setup and uh, the things that he shared with us. So I think that's cool. Vance, fishing season's winding down. Um, put together a little deal with the AC Insider. We're going to be having some coverage coming this weekend from New York. Uh, last two stops of the uh, Elite Series. And so our viewers can look forward to getting a little bit of that stuff brought to them on anglerschannel.com. Tournament results are posted. We're not going to get into those today because Vance and I are striving to hit the one-hour mark. And I think we did a lot better today, Vance. I got a lot of fishing stuff I still want to talk about, but we're going to spare the listeners. You and I maybe just stay on for a while. Yep. Yep, definitely. I'm looking forward to the... uh... Coverage on the uh, Elite Series, too. I mean, it's smallmouth season, and that's uh, kind of a novelty for a guy like me that lives as far south as I do. I think it's just so neat, you know, to watch those guys go up there and whack them the way I know they're going to on that northern swing. You know. Do you think you'd enjoy that style of fishing, though? Oh, gosh, man. It's on the bucket list. I got to get up there. It's on the bucket list. I got to get up there. The closest thing we have to it is something called a swanee bass, which only lives in the Swanee River watershed, and you look at them, and they're there's some kind of a smallmouth. But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, other than that, it's hundreds of miles for me, you know, to get to smallmouth country. So I'm always kind of enamored of that. I think it's just so neat uh, when I go out this time of year, and they're just not biting down here uh, for another couple of months. We'll suffer through that, but those guys are having so much fun up there, and those fish will roam, and they'll they'll do what they're supposed to do. They're very aggressive. And what little bit of fishing mm-hmm. I've done up north of Minnesota and all that has always been so much fun because those fish, I guess they have like a six-month window to get it done, and they're going to eat, you know, they're going to eat. So, no doubt, neat. no doubt. They catch some catch some tanks, and it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. I guess I'm in like I'm a bass desert. Up, yeah. Yeah. I'm in I'm a bass desert down here. The, everything's great north, and everything's great south. Down here in the desert, it's it's no man's land. So uh, we do get some smallmouth in some streams. We get some smallmouths on the main river, but nothing like what they do. Our, our smallmouth are a lot more like Tennessee River smallmouth than, you know, Michigan or New York smallmouth. That Great Lakes region's certainly got a, a different build, and they've got gobies to eat, right? It's like having little Snickers bars swimming around everywhere. And, uh <laughs> <laughs> no, I know I'd be built like a tank if I had free Snickers bars. So, yeah. well, listen, man, I think to keep to keep with our timing, we're going to wrap this up. We want to say thanks to all the folks that helped make the AC Insider podcast possible. Uh, we want to say thanks to the folks for sticking with Vance and I as we get this thing lined out and moving along. And special thanks to Matt Becker for joining us, not for just one segment, but for two. Uh, 
on behalf of Vance and myself and uh, all the other folks at Angler's Channel, we appreciate you guys listening, and we look forward to hearing from you again uh, every other Tuesday. Tight lines. Thanks for listening to this week's Angler's Channel Insider Podcast, presented by Sportsman's Warehouse. Also brought to you in part by Pro Charging Systems, makers of the Dual Pro Chargers, TH Marine, Trick Step, Toyota Bonus Bucks, Costa Conserve and Compete, and of course, anglerschannel.com, your number one tournament bass fishing resource.